Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. China and the U.S. have agreed to establish new dialogues on trade and export control. A U.S. federal judge has set March the 4th, 2024 as a trial date for former President Donald Trump on charges of attempting to overturn the 2020 election. More than half of the industrial robots installed worldwide are in China. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. The Chinese Commerce Minister has expressed this country's readiness to work with the United States to create a favorable policy environment for business cooperation. Wang Wentao met his U.S. counterpart Gina Raimondo in Beijing, and it raised China's concerns regarding issues such as U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, semiconductor policies, restrictions of two-way investment, and sanctions on Chinese enterprises. The two sides agreed to open new communication channels between the Chinese Commerce Ministry and the U.S. Commerce Department. They also agreed on an export control information exchange program to explain their respective export control systems. Zhou Zaxing has more. China says it is willing to work with the United States to promote bilateral trade investment. Uh, the two sides announced establishment of new communication channels to seek solutions to address specific business issues. It said that they have initiated an export control information exchange mechanism, which serves as a mechanism for explaining their respective export control systems and improving communication. Let's hear what the two sides had to say during the talks. We are ready to work with Washington to foster a more favorable policy environment for cooperation between the two countries' businesses, to bolster bilateral trade and investment in a stable manner, and to inject stronger impetus into the world economic recovery. The vast majority of our trade and investment relationship does not involve national security concerns, and in this regard I'm committed Uh, to promoting trade and investment in those areas that are in our mutual best interest. But there are a slew of serious concerns Chinese side has raised over what it called unilateral and protectionist measures by the U.S. side, including uh, the U.S. Section 301 tariffs on Chinese goods, its semiconductor policies, uh, restrictions of two-way investment, and discriminatory subsidies and sanctions on Chinese enterprises. One also dismissed the U.S. generalization of the concept of national security as inducive to normal economic and trade exchanges, market rules, and fair competition, adding it will only harm the security and stability of the global industrial and supply chains. That was Zhou Jiaxin reporting. Now for more on this, we're joined by Dr. Yao Shujie, his Chang Kong professor of economics at Chongqing University. Thank you, Professor Yao. It's good to have you back on the show. Now, Professor, overall, from the readouts from both sides, how do you see the results of the meeting between the two ministers? I'm uh, pretty, you know, uh, cautiously optimistic about the two-side dialogue between the the, fund, the commerce ministry mm-hmm. uh, from the United States and China. And I think it's a positive step from the United States to send a senior officials to China despite there's a lot of tension, there's a decoupling process between the largest economy, uh, the two largest economies in the world. China and the U.S., a country 
for over one-fifth of the total export in the international market. So the conflict between China and the United States is not only harming uh, China and the U.S., but also uh, creating a lot of uncertainty for the rest of the world, that is uh, one of the biggest factors affecting the, the normal recovery of the global economy. And this situation has been lasting uh, since Donald Trump took power uh, in uh, in 2018, and mm. now five years into the law, uh, both sides recognize that these kinds of decoupling and also the imposition uh, trade protectionism, uh, particularly uh, using the national security to impose a lot of restriction on the normal uh, economy and business exchange uh, between the U.S. and China have been damaging not only the economy of the U.S. and China, but also in particular the consumers, uh, the, the, the consumer price index also have been increasing to, ha- to harm the general welfare mm. of, of the consumer in the United States in particular. And also some producers which depend largely on export to the uh, most advanced economies such as China and the United States and the EU. So I think mm. the both sides they recognize they have to keep the door open and try to minimize the conflict of trade war between two countries to see whether there is some opportunity of improving uh, both sides' uh, economy uh, welfare, uh, particularly uh, smoothing the the trade confliction and uh, stimulating the bilateral, mm. uh, not only export in this case, but also uh, you mentioned that also. Uh, by by directional uh, exchange of crypto investment, uh, mm. technological exchange, and so on and so forth. Right. Now, Professor, the two sides agreed to set up a working group um, uh, composed of uh, deputy ministerial and bureau-level government officials from both sides, along with representatives from the business community to seek solutions to specific issues. Uh, how important do you think the working group is? Well, it is uh, vitally important at this stage. Uh, you know, uh, remember that, as I mentioned, both sides have been highly antagonized uh, over the last uh, five years or six years or so. And now they uh, established working group at the ministry, sub-ministry level and the, the bureau level. Uh, at least they open a, a, a avenue uh, that um, if there's any particular concern, there will be some sort of at least exchange to address issue. Mm. But uh, on the other hand, we have to put a very, uh, you know, cautious note that we cannot hope too much about this uh, mechanism because um, uh, the antagonism between the United States and China have actually destructed the trust between the two sides. Particularly, mm. uh, there's a lot of uncertainty not only uh, among the business community, but also the, the general public within China is very Mm. Uh, I'm happy about the way that the United States has been behaving. Mm. Now, Professor, why does it have to include representatives from the business community? Yes, because normally these kinds of bilateral uh, negotiations, they are driven by the political desire. Mm. But I think politicians, the policymakers in particular, they have to look at the interest of the business. How difficult is the business are doing uh, doing this kind of uh, you know international trade investment between China and 
United States. A lot of uh, business in the United States also suffer from uh, losing the significant market share at the global level, driven China to become more self-sufficient in many uh, respects. It actually uh, have a repercussion effect on mm. the uh, U.S. business at home and abroad. On the other hand, I think uh, China has been restrained by the kinds of uh, you know, export opportunity as well as technology exchange, which is advertising you know, the general progress of some of the key areas, particularly the semiconductor industry, just, uh, just mentioned at the beginning. So, um, uh, yes, I think um, the, unless the, you know, the mutual trust has been built, otherwise any negotiation could be very painful. Mm. Um, Professor, another specific detail is that the two sides initiated an export control information uh, exchange mechanism. Uh, so they were explained to each other how their export controls work. Um, but then, Professor, what's the necessity of this mechanism? Will it change the fundamentals in extra, export control policies of both sides, especially from the United States? Yeah, the export control policy, you know, in 2018, when the U.S. imposed the, the, the you know, uh, cross the bar, uh, you know, import uh, tariffs from China, mm. which actually they used the so-called uh, 301, you know, clause in the, in the U.S. law, which is actually um, anti the general spirit of, you know, mutual agreement. Uh, set up by the WTO. Now, with the, uh, you know, the export control uh, information exchange, uh, presumably, I think uh, both sides have to give a clear reason why you do that. Mm. Uh, are, are you using the national security as a good reason for uh, general business benefit? Or uh, can you do it in a more subtle way uh, so that the, the damage between the two sides uh, particularly the business uh, community is, uh, could be uh, you know, essentially minimized so that uh, both sides can benefit. So there is a, the, the public the information exchange, to me, is more like a bargaining uh, platform. Mm. Uh, I bargain for something, you have to give up for something, or you bargain for something, I have to uh, give up for something, or vice versa. Mm. So uh, it, 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 is, it is useful, but you know, how effective it's going to uh, you know, mitigate the current uh, mistrust and also the, the current conviction between the suicide, I think the time will tell us. Uh, but at least it is the beginning of a, you know, some sort of uh, open window for some uh, potential discussion mm. uh, for, for reducing the trade conviction. Now, Professor, as you mentioned, um, the Chinese side has has expressed its concerns of the U.S. using national security uh, as a cross-the-board excuse uh, to exert export controls over Chinese uh, uh, to China. Now, um, with as uh, also as you mentioned, the antagonism between the two sides is going to be there for quite some time. So, against uh, this background, what do you think the Chinese policymakers should do to? Um, while talking to the U.S. side? Yeah, there are two issues here, Liu Kun. Mm-hmm. The, the first issue is that the security, uh, how you interpret it as the security. The United States government 
uh, in my view, have been using the security to cover everything that they take action against China. Uh, I, I think there are some uh, logical uh, reasoning for security. Uh, I think China also has security uh, you know, reason to, uh, you know, to constrain uh, some export. But the United States' uh, use of security is across the board of trying to maximize the potential technological and commercial benefit for the United States at the expenses of the trading partner. And this this is a biggest problem. I think what China is fairly unhappy about this is that you use uh, security as a, a general term for everything. Um, some are understandable, but most of the time it's, it's not understandable. It's not un, it's not reasonable at mm-hmm. all. So how the second issue is that how China is going to deal with this situation? China have to take um, a, 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 a fairly proactive approach of uh, trying to gauge the potential damage of this uh, excuse and the policy action against China. What will be the potential damage? And can China draw a, a, a plan A and plan B? Mm. Uh, plan A is to, you know, for the best of the both sides, they say, okay, if we can open the door uh, wider and we can more genuine about the, the mutual uh, business uh, interest, then uh, China is ready to, to negotiate. Mm. But if you use the security as a very uh, unjustified term, then China has to be cautious and have to take some uh, you know, proactive action mm, right. uh, to protect the interests of the Chinese business and the Chinese consumer. Mm, now, Professor, thank you. We appreciate your time and your analysis. That was Dr. Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Coming up, we'll take a look at the criminal charges against the former U.S. President Donald Trump. This is World Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. A U.S. federal judge has set March the 4th, 2024 as a trial date for former President Donald Trump on charges of attempting to overturn the 2020 election. That is one day before Super Tuesday, a potentially decisive date in the Republican presidential nominating contest when more than a dozen states will pick the party's candidates for the 2024 election. During a hearing on Monday, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chatkin rejected trial dates proposed by both the Justice Department and Trump's legal team. Kit Fisher reports. It's not the result that Donald Trump had been hoping for. His lawyers had argued that the trial should be delayed until 2026, but District Judge Tanya Chutkan refused, saying that Mr. Trump will have to juggle his legal defense with his efforts to win the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. With a former president running for re-election next year while facing four criminal prosecutions, the legal timetable has taken on an outsized importance. One of those cases is in Georgia, where Mr. Trump is charged with trying to overturn the results of the presidential election in that state. 
On the same day as the hearing in Washington, one of Trump's co-defendants in that case, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, is asking a federal judge in Georgia to take over his case and then to dismiss charges against him. But the hearing will also be the first time that substantive arguments will be made in court. It's a precursor to the official arraignments of Mr Trump and his 18 alleged co-conspirators, including his former lawyer Rudy Giuliani, next week. That was Kit Fisher with the report. Now, for more on this, we're joined by Edward Lehman. He is legal affairs commentator and managing director at Lehman Lee and Xu Law Firm. Thank you, Dr Lehman. It's good to have you back on the show. Great to be here. Now, doctor, first up, help us understand the timing of this trial. Is it a deliberate move by the judge? Well, the the timing is definitely a deliberate move on behalf of the judge. The judge is in charge of its courtroom and her courtroom. And in this particular case, she, you know, there were dates that were proposed by both sides. And then she decided to come up with a, a date that was adequate for her. Mr. Trump's team wanted to put it in 2026, which would have been enough time, as they were saying, to be able to prepare the case, and certainly after the election where it was less political. And then she's decided, to, in her wisdom, and she's in charge, I mean, to to move it to that particular date, which is March 4th, 2024, and um, and, and it's, it's slated to go forward on that time, which I think will be problematic, certainly for Mr. Trump, because he's running for president. And to prepare for a case like this is really monumental. I mean, it takes mm. you all your time, energy, and effort. Even though you're just a defendant, a bunch of lawyers are working on it, uh, you've got to participate in it. And it puts him at a very serious disadvantage for running for president. So mm. that's what Well, uh, Dr. Lehman, uh, a statement from Trump said the date uh, deprives him of, quote-unquote, his constitutional rights of a fair trial. Um, how do you think um, the Trump campaign team or legal team will approach this issue moving forward? Yeah, the claim there is one of due process. So everyone is entitled to a uh, a fair trial. And by that, you know, that would be having enough time, having enough uh, resources to be able to defend yourself in trial and uh, having an adequate um, you know team to be able to put that together. And so what they're claiming is, this doesn't give them a right to a fair trial because the, of the date is being you know, sped up to March 4th, 2024, and it hinders his ability to ad- adequately prepare and present a defense. And I don't think that that's so outrageous about what, what Mr. Trump is saying there. So he suggests that the timing might compromise his opportunity to receive a just and impartial trial as guaranteed by the Constitution, which, you know, Mr. Trump is proven is innocent until proven guilty, and he's entitled to that. So I think that the mm-hmm. argument is reasonable. The judge is the ultimate uh, decision maker, but the judge also has to keep in mind that the judge is not infallible because they're not final, that they're, they're, it would be subject to a court of appeals, and not giving Mr. Trump enough time is going to be something that might uh, lead to it being overturned at the court of appeals or overturned at the Supreme Court. And I think this will go all the way to the Supreme Court eventually. Well, certainly very complicated. Uh, Trump is not on four charges. Um, f- so f- 
uh, for just some information for our listeners. One, to defraud the United States. A second, to obstruct an official government proceeding, the certification of the electoral college vote. And the third, to deprive people of a civil right, the right to have their votes counted. And finally, a fourth account of obstructing or attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. So judges um, uh, on these four cases are trying to seek trial dates um, starting from early next year. Uh, Dr. Lehman, um, which one or which ones uh, among the four are the more serious charges? Yeah, so there's all sorts of legal pundits weighing in all over the place, including myself. So, I mean, (laughs) among the the four charges against Trump, in my opinion, the charge to obstruct an official government proceeding, specifically the certification of the electoral college vote, could be considered the most serious. Mm -hmm. This charge involves actions that directly relate to the functioning of the democratic process and the peaceful transfer of power, which are fundamentally which are fundamental to the stability and integrity of a democratic society or the constitutional republic of which the United States is a part of. So that's the most serious one. If you saw the Republican uh, debate, I mean, uh, Mr. Uh, Pence, Vice President, former Vice President Pence, mm. had brought this up that there was some uh, idea that he was asking him or suggesting to get a whole new slate of uh, of folks to, to, to vote in a different way. Mr. Pence didn't agree with that. Um, so that one is is definitely a sticker for him. Um, it's it is a very difficult because you have to weigh this idea of the First Amendment, which is freedom of speech, mm. against the second one, which is saying to obstruct an official government proceeding. And now talking to Mr. Pence, is that enough? Did he you know do something in particular besides talking? Uh, that's where the debate is, and that's what the trial will focus on. Mm. Well, uh, Dr. Lehman, so among the, the the runners of the Republican Party, uh, Trump is still one of the most uh, the strongest runners. And um, how do you think the charges, the four charges that were just mentioned, uh, will influence the votes? And because a lot of people are saying that uh, the Democrats and the Republicans are actually using this against each other, and the votes will eventually be a game for just a few people. Yeah. I- I think this whole thing is smacks of it looks very bad in, on the world stage. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly we have had a presidential candidate that has run from prison. He got uh, he got two percent of the vote. It's a guy called Eugene Victor Debs back in 1920. Mm-hmm. Ironically, he was in prison because he was a socialist, because he was a communist and because that didn't. Uh, Kind of uh, you know jive with this, the American society back then. I think it was uh, si- Silent Cal Coolidge who ran that, won that race. Mm-hmm. But we have had precedent where that has happened. I think ironically, all this sort of um, polarization and these uh, these different uh, indictments that have come down have actually helped Mr. Trump. They have not hurt Mr. Trump. There's a group of people that are diehard Trump people, and uh, you know will be behind him no matter what. So you've got those folks. You've got the folks in the middle that are saying, you know, I don't want all this drama. And so maybe Mr. Trump isn't the right person or maybe we can find an alternative candidate. Um, And so that that might be an alternative for some of these other wannabes like uh, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Glenn Youngkin, Mike Mm -hmm. Pence, who was the former vice president, as I mentioned before. Um, You know, they're all in the running you got Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey. You got uh, a very unlikely but uh, 
sort of a very interesting candidate in Vivek Ramaswamy, mm. who is uh, super intelligent, uh, and Doug Burgum from uh, from North Dakota, who have, uh, not many people have heard of, and Asa Hutchinson, who used to be a um, governor, a governor from mm. Arkansas, right? right. So that's the that's kind of the uh, the candidates. Glenn Youngkin hasn't thrown his hat, so to speak, in the ring yet. These other folks had participated. Mr. Trump did not in the Republican uh, debate. Uh, and I probably think it was a good move for him not to be there because, uh, it, you know, it, he's so far ahead right now. It's, it's better to do his own thing. Um, but the rest of the folks are, are, are in this uh, fray. And I'm not sure that a lot was accomplished on that particular debate other than getting a look-see at some of those folks. Mm. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye on how, you know, the judges on the four cases will arrange the trial date. But thank you. That was Dr. Edward Lehman, legal affairs commentator and managing director for Lehman Lee and Xu Law Firm. After the break, we'll take a look at the market for industrial robots in China. This is World Today. Stay with us. Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard. Economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China's robotics industry has been maintaining a stable growth trend, with production of industrial robots reaching 222,000 sets in the first half of this year. This is an increase of 5.4% on a yearly basis. China is now the fastest-growing robot market in the world. More than half of the industrial robots installed worldwide were in China. China says it will increase the use of robots in manufacturing and industry, viewing the technology as a key engine for growth and for moving up the country's position in the industrial chain. For more, um, our reporter Zhao Yang spoke with Aina Tangen, senior fellow at Taihe Institute. So Aina, China is now the fastest growing robot market in the world. So what do you think are some of the main factors for the rapid development of the industrial robots in China? Well, China's actually been uh, on top for the last 10 years. And what it is, is uh, China's reacting to higher wage rates and the uh, need to stay competitive in the global supply chain. 
robots uh, allow you to do that. They can do repetitive tasks for longer. You don't have to worry about higher wages. They're safety, uh, much safer than using people, especially in um, very complex areas like welding and lifting and things like this. Mm. And robots are deeply integrated with the new generation of information technology and enhanced automation now. So, what are some of its main application views? Well, it's really across the board. So, when you start talking about、uh, automation,、um, it's just one component. It's kind of like five G. There are three components to that in terms of communication, the sensors, and then the,、uh, the the actual AI and crunching. The same thing applies here. So, when you start talking about a complete automation system, it starts with the ordering. You have to get the materials into the factory.、Uh, there has to be an automated order system, so you know how much you need.、Um, how How to get it there logistically, and then how to put it together, and that's where the robots come in in terms of manufacturing.、Uh, thereafter,、uh, you—it's once again—it's all digital. This kind of digital 4.0 idea, where you're cutting the cost of logistics and also transaction fees, making things much more efficient. Very important to China,、uh, as you know, wages climb, which is what the Chinese government wants.、Uh, they want to get above this middle income trap. So、uh, it's all part of a plan.、Uh, the issue here is the countries that adopt this and do it well will be the leading manufacturers of the world, and this is what、uh, China is counting on because、uh, most of the other countries are lagging behind. And the density of robots in the manufacturing sector here in China has reached nearly 400 per 10,000 workers. So, how would improve the efficiency of the industrial production? Well, if you want to work around the clock, you need three shifts of workers,、uh, and you need multiples because if you want to work seven days a week, whereas a robot,、uh, absent maintenance, all right, can continue working literally around the clock.、Uh, you can have an estimate of maybe one hour and twenty-four when it's down.、Um, this allows、um, much more. You know, you don't need as many uh, machines, uh, etc., because you can push out. Uh, literally three times as much、um, product、uh, as you could before using a much more expensive labor-based system.、Mm. And meanwhile, the service robots and special robots can be also applied in different scenarios. And could you tell us more about that? Well, service robots are, are really kind of talking about. I mean, we, it started off with this idea of these, you know, these Roombas, you know, these little、uh, discs that run around your house and, and clean it.、Uh, they become increasingly more sophisticated. The software is better, but now you're starting to look at、um, uh, robots that can actually assist, for instance, elderly.、Uh, with a growing population of elderly、uh, robots who can、uh, literally go to people's homes, be in their homes, and help them and assist. System and everything from meal preparation to getting up、uh, safely, you know, getting to the bathrooms and taking showers and doing all these things,、um, much cheaper than having、uh, people do that.、Uh, obviously, there will still be people needed. <laughs> the machines have to be, robots have to be maintained, and also they have to、uh, be built. And it's not all going to be by uh, uh, other robots. Uh, there's still a lot of、uh, software that has to be designed and improved on a constant basis. So, yeah, then you can go into fast food. Imagine, you know, at the、uh, Olympics, Winter Olympics,、um, most of the 
majority of food was actually prepared by robotic chefs. Very consistent, mm. uh, time-wise, very predictable. Uh, it can be uh, a huge savings. You know, imagine that you have a, a robotic uh, restaurant kiosk that can make, you know, 200 items and it's available 20, uh, you know, 24 hours a day. Uh, that would be amazing. Uh, mm. It would really kind of change the way, um, you know, restaurants and even if it's brought into the home, it could change the way that we live. Mm. And on development of the robotics with AI. So, Aina, how would you describe the picture of the AI research and development around the world? And what advantages does China have in the realm of the AI? Well, China's advantage is it is, has this huge production base, which you can apply uh, AI to. So when you start talking about uh, manufacturing, uh, all the processes that I was describing to you earlier in terms of the chain of resources to uh, delivering products to individuals, that can be sharpened with AI. Uh, AI allows uh, you in the future to have what thing, something called smart contracts. So instead of going to a lawyer or trying to negotiate terms, the parties to a contract will just sit down and fill out an online form, which assigns risk to each side. And they, they, knowing, they know they have the risk on this. So what it does is it not only makes the process simpler and cheaper, faster, but it also uh, can monitor the deal so that it knows if you are in the process of complying with the contract. Because if you're not, then the other party needs to know. Mm -hmm. And if you're the one who's making something, you need to know that they can pay you. And this can be, in fact, automated. This would be a tremendous uh, savings um, over current models. And that allows the prices of things to go down. And that, in, in essence, is a productivity gain. And these kinds of productivity gains are the things that can reduce people's need to work. So instead of working for, you know, five days a week or six days a week, you could literally get it down to three and a half days a week and still have a, an economy that goes 24-7. Mm. And with the emerging and development of the open AI's chat GPT or the generative AI, so Aina, how do you look at the U.S. competition with China on this front? Because some say the GPT craze is now believed to be the latest frontier of a technological, you know, competition between U.S. and China. So what's your thought? on that? Well, I, I think it's a bit of uh, hype. Uh, people are, are, you know, their imagination was captured. Uh, the fact is uh, AI has been around for a very long period of time. It's just uh, how do you apply it? Uh, right now, people talk about competition, but it's really not about the competition. Yes, there are better uh, algorithms that can be developed. Uh, but as soon as you've developed yours, somebody's going to figure out a better one. The mm. real issue is data. And China has it, 1.4 billion people. And that data can be very, very useful because an AI without a data is not very useful. Mm -hmm. So that is the, uh, the main difference uh, right now. The U.S. can say, well, we're doing all these things, but how are you going to get the data to, to fuel the kind of uh, advances you want? Mm. And scientists are calling for setting up guardrails to regulate the new emerging technologies development and the, uh, for example, the uh, generative AI. So how do you think the chat GPT or the generative AI should be regulated and what social or ethical issues do we need to consider? Well, there, I mean, there are real dangers. I mean, like any tool, uh, even a butter knife can be used to stab somebody as well as put butter on your bread. Uh, the question is, how do you make sure it's positive in the main? Um, you know, 
generative AI and ChatGPT can be used to defraud people. We're already beginning to see that. There's fake voices, fake pictures. Uh, AI is, is you know kind of narrowing in on on people who would be vulnerable, and you know bad people are trying to do bad things with it. So there has to be some government regulation. There are so many issues, but in the end, uh, you cannot uh, control all the things that are going to be done with AI, but you can control the information. And I think you'll see countries moving in that direction. And by controlling the information, I mean verifying it saying that this is true information and having so that people can actually differentiate what is being put out by an AI versus uh, what is actually factual. That was Ina Tangen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Huawei's newly released Mate 60 series has incorporated satellite phone call capabilities via the Tiantong One mobile communication satellite system. Earlier media reports show that the new series includes power amplifier chips developed by Chinese chipmakers, specifically specially designed for the Tiantong One mobile communication satellite system. These chips offer voice communication, image transmission, precise positioning, and data reporting. With the new series, users can directly call one another um, on the smartphone using a satellite orbiting the Earth. Now, for more on this, we're joined by Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Nov Arcade Technologies. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Hi. Now, first up, uh, could you please explain in more details about how satellite phone calls work? Well, that, that's definitely uh, something that's very advanced for the mobile phone. You know, usually if you, if you put, well, usually we don't use that iPhone in our daily lives, but that's mainly uh, in the purpose where there is no mobile signal. For example, if you go to a field trip, something like that, or, you know, the uh, ocean sailors who need the satellite phone in order to uh, communicate with people. So uh, having installed this satellite phone in the uh, Huawei's new Mate 60 uh, Plus is really a very, you know, very uh, advanced uh, technique, um, if we look at it this way. And, and what they have to do is that your phone has to uh, get connected with a satellite, mm-hmm. and definitely that will incur a pretty large amount of cost anyway. I mean, you, you have to mm-hmm. open this uh, function in the first place. But anyway, uh, the Huawei's mobile means that you don't have to buy an additional satellite phone if you just hold this Mate, uh, Mate 60. Mm. Now, um, as you mentioned, cost is one of the reasons why it is difficult to apply satellite phone calls in the market. Uh, what about the requirement in terms of facilities and infrastructure? Well, that's mainly the cost thing. I mean, mm. uh, you know, nowadays we have, if you live in the urban area, like, like mm. what I'm doing in most cases, uh, then you have much cheaper ways uh, to communicate with people. You know, uh, you, you don't really cost money nowadays at all. If you just use a WeChat and make a WeChat phone call, it's, it's totally free if you've got a Wi-Fi at home. And if you are outside working on the streets, then you have just to use some of your data traffic. But that's very small amount of data traffic if you use the same thing as that iPhone because you don't see the video on that iPhone. 
anymore, right? You just hear the voice. Uh, and that's very small cost if you live in urban area or nothing at all. But if you go through a satellite phone, that, that means you're going to incur a very heavy amount of cost. Mm -hmm. So the satellite phone is basically something that you will use in the field where you don't have mobile network. The satellite phone is definitely well, your only choice in that case. But if you live in the urban area, then why use a satellite? Mm. Now let's let's make some guess. <laughs> How do you think the charging mechanism will be for satellite phone calls? Well, I'm not sure, but I mean, mm. in most cases, satellite phones are considered to be quite expensive, you know, mm. because uh, you have to use the data traffic of a satellite, and that means at least about 400 uh, kilometers uh, from the satellite to your phone. So that's a very long distance connection. So that means you know the the phone call is really quite expensive. But the the, the thing is that Huawei is is being able to publish a large amount of mobile phone uh, compared with uh, usually uh, the selling volume of satellite phones. Uh, Huawei is actually meaning more people will have the Huawei's terminal. So mm -hmm. together they might be able to get a better bargain with the satellite phone companies. Mm. Now, do you think uh, satellite phones will become uh, much more uh, widely uh, applied and also more popular among average consumers in the next few years? Uh, no, no, not really. I mean, mm. because uh, as, as I just mentioned in the previous talk is that satellite phone is something that is, um, uh, it's 100% it's outperforming the original, you know, the ordinary uh, communication method that we use in our daily lives when there is no signal. You know, when there is uh, no signal, usually the mobile phone just turns into a rock. You, you can't do <laughs> nothing with it. Uh, but if, if there is signal, then you have uh, multiple ways. You, usually nowadays, people like to call video calls, you know, because you can see what's going on out there. Um, also, if there is a voice call, then that's fine. That's the same as cell iPhone. Uh, but if you go to the place where you don't have uh, the mobile uh, signals, then you, you definitely need the cell iPhone because if, if you look at the the covering range of uh, of the mobile tower, nowadays the 5G network covers only about 500 meters around it. And you probably mm -hmm. can still find some signal if you are like uh, one to two kilometers away from the tower. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, you don't have uh, the, the signal at all. So satellite phone is widely used with these places. Right. Well, in your observation, apart from satellite phone calls, what are some other newest trends in smartphones uh, these days? Well, there, there has been many things. I mean, for uh, well, I, I can't really name all the uh, applications, mm -hmm. but it's, it, it would be too difficult. I mean, so many changes. But let, let me tell you a few points. Uh, one very important thing is locating. I mean, if, if you look at the locating right now, mm. uh, when we use the locating uh, things, it really tells you that you are around this place. You know, you are, you are either you are within a circle of about 20 meters, but it can't tell you exactly where you are. So, so if, if we try to do something more precise, uh, then the location service that is provided right now and picked up by our mobile phone right now is something that is pretty hard to tell you exactly where you should be doing. You, you, you can just know you're you are around this place within a circle of about 20 to 30 meters. But uh, phone companies are trying to do this with a more precise thing, telling you where you are maybe uh, within a uh, you know, uh, a circle of maybe 20 centimeters. Mm. So that means if, if we can do that, then the mobile phones will be much more efficient with location. 
anticipating where we are in the future. So this is just one small example, but we are improving in all these aspects. Mm. Also, one more question. Um, in your research, uh, which makers are dominating the smartphone market in China these days? Uh, we know that Huawei is one of them, but not the only one, right? Yeah, I mean, currently there are a few large players. I mean, Xiaomi, Vivo, um, Huawei, um, OPPO, and uh, of of course, Apple is selling a large amount of phones in China. So these players look like they are competing against each other. I mean, uh, Apple is somewhat earning a quite loyal amount of customers mm. because it has got a unique system. You know, mm. Apple always says our phone is much safer than others, uh, than the Android system. But uh, for the phones using Android systems, then they are really fighting against each other, and it's difficult for these companies to get prof, uh, you know, get a profit as high as Apple has been doing because there is competition between like uh, Xiaomi and Vivo. Uh, there's you know head-to-head competition. Uh, currently, the Huawei is trying to build its own uh, mobile system, which has been a very uh, large improvement compared with other phone companies. So hopefully, it can do something different. Mm, right. It's very interesting, and we'll certainly see how the market will react to this new. Uh, satellite phone call uh, capability. But thank you. That was Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Nova K Technologies. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taihur Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date. Presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So, join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome, I'm Elaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight. As well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain, to prepare for the world tomorrow. Join me on World Today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Officials in Nigeria and Greece have demanded the return of treasures after thousands of items were stolen from the British Museum. The London institution said a member of staff had been dismissed after items including gold jewelry and gems dating from 15th century BC to 19th century AD had been found stolen. Hartwig Fisher, director of the museum, resigned after admitting to failings in investigation into the thefts. The museum has launched an independent review of security, and the matter is now also being investigated by the London Metropolitan Police. For more, we're joined by Duncan Bartlett. He is former BBC correspondent, editor of Asian Affairs magazine, also a research associate at Soas China Institute, University of London. Now, thank you, Duncan, for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I'm actually live in front of the steps of the British Museum.、Mm. Let me paint a picture for you. It's a busy August afternoon, so tourists from all over the world have come to see. Britain's number one tourist attraction,、mm. and in fact, many of them are queuing up to see a special exhibition, China's Hidden Century,、mm. which covers 19th-century Chinese art. But as you mentioned in your introduction, there is a real cloud hanging over the British Museum、mm. following the resignation of the director last week, and this allegation that more than 2,000 objects have gone missing 
from the unlisted collection of the museum. So,、uh, how Duncan, tell us how are the British public、uh, re- reacting to this、uh, series of thefts in general? I mean, different people, of course, react differently, but how's the mood in general? I think there's considerable shock.、Mm. This wasn't a, a, a collection of you know small,、uh, low-value antiques stolen from a local market.、Mm. I mean, this is the、uh, key metropolitan museum with a worldwide reputation stretching back centuries. Has it now been linked to、mm. illegal trafficking in antiquities?、Mm. The other big problem is that apparently an expert in antiques contacted the British Museum to、uh, say that he thought some items had been stolen and listed for sale on eBay,、right. and、uh, there was a bit of a cover-up over that. So that's what's led to the allegation.、Uh, that's what's led to the resignation、uh, of, the, of the director,、mm. and in fact, a whole big question mark now, really, about some of the other. Great items of treasure held within the museum's collection, including many artifacts from China.、Mm. Now, as you mentioned,、um, reports show that、uh, the museum has warned has been warned earlier, but it overlooked the signals. And also, George Osborne,、uh, who is chair of trustees of the museum, also said more could have been done to save the stolen items. Now,、uh, in your observation, why has this happened in the first place? Well, at the moment, the position of the British Museum is that it is not going to comment in detail on the allegations of theft because、uh, that's part of a, a police investigation, and I can understand that. But the speculation is this: it's not that somebody has been walking around the famous galleries and picking up the Egyptian mummies or the、uh, Roman lions, chucking them into their bag and walking out of the front door. The point is that the museum in which I'm standing in front of now. Only has eighty thousand objects on display. I think、mm. only that's an enormous number, isn't it? But that's only one percent of the museum's entire collection.、Right. Most of them are kept out of sight of the public, and the allegation is that the objects that have gone missing weren't just out of sight of the public, but they weren't even properly listed. So that's why it's going to be difficult for the British Museum to get to the bottom of this and find out how many priceless objects dating back centuries, particularly、mm. from the Greek collection, have have gone astray. Well, Duncan,、um, people are raising questions regarding, you know,、uh, whether it is safe、uh, for items to be stored or housed in the British Museum. What, how would you respond? How would? What do you think about that? Well, this is a question which is being raised by the Chinese state media, actually, because traditionally the argument has been, well, we'll keep your object safe, and then if you come and pay us a visit in London, you can see them.、Mm. The British Museum has got something like twenty-three thousand Chinese objects. Including items from the Tang, Shang, and Zhao dynasties. That's the biggest collection of Chinese antiquities in the West,、mm. uh, including some very famous items. Now, what the Chinese are saying, and the Greeks are saying as well, is: Can you actually guarantee that you look after these things properly?、Right. Mm. Because if they're going missing from your collection and they're not being properly listed, we want them back. We want to display them in Athens or perhaps in Beijing. So you can imagine this is putting a lot of heat on the British Museum and asking some very difficult questions.、Mm. Now, Duncan, apparently、um, it looks like the management of the museum and also the housing, the collection needs to be improved. What do you think needs to be done immediately, especially? 
Well, I think the immediate decision is to try to make sure that every single item which is in the museum's collection, whether it's on public display or not, is pro- proper, properly recorded in a catalogue. Mm. So that if, you know, if there are supposed to be 900 ancient Greek coins, let's make sure there's a proper list of those and a photograph. That's the key, that's the key responsibility of the museum. Now, there's a financial implication for this, too, mm. because uh, it could be damaging to the museum's uh, reputation, and that could lead Duncan, to, uh, who are the, to finding it difficult. Duncan, sorry to interrupt, but who are the main sponsors of the museum? Well, until recently, it was British Petroleum, BP, mm. but there was an outcry about that. Um, so at the moment, the main exhibition ex- uh, sponsor for the Chinese exhibition is Citibank an American capitalist mm. institution, rather interestingly. So you can see there's quite a lot of politics involved here too, really. Mm. But, you know, I would just make the point that nearly every Chinese visitor who comes to the UK puts the British Museum as the number one place they want to see on their list. Quite interesting now, isn't it, that the Chinese state media is saying, don't you think it would be better if some of those mm. enormously valuable and precious I and think, old Chinese mm. objects return to China? Well, Duncan, um, not only uh, you know uh, Chinese uh, media press is uh, is calling for that, but also I think officials from uh, Nigeria and Greece have uh, made similar calls. So, uh, briefly in one minute, how do you think the British Museum should respond to the requests? The British Museum needs to listen carefully to these requests from government around the world, particularly uh, the request from the Greek government over the return of the Elgin Margables. I think there might be a deal to be done. But this is also a time to reflect, really, on British colonial history and, indeed, the origin of many of these beautiful objects inside the museum where I'm standing. Perhaps, as the Chinese have said, they were a result of colonial exploitation. Mm. Well, no matter what, I think the first and foremost thing uh, is perhaps to take real good care of these uh, items because just because of how precious they are. But uh, thank you, Duncan. That was Duncan Bartlett, former BBC correspondent, editor of Asian Affairs magazine, and also a research associate at SOAS China Institute, University of London. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of the headlines. China and the U.S. have agreed to establish new dialogues on trade and export control. A U.S. federal judge had set March the 4th, 2024 as a trial date for former President Donald Trump on charges of attempting to overturn the 2020 election. More than half of the industrial robots installed worldwide are in China. Or to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, you can follow us on the X platform at CDTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.